I want to see you rightly. And I ask, Lord God, that you would just open up our eyes so that we can see you tonight. We ask that you'd bring a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that we might know you better, that we might see you. Father, I'm so aware that it's not by might and it's not by power. It's by your spirit. I ask that tonight, Lord God, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would reveal yourself to us in greater measure. Lord, I just ask that you just take over this service, that you take over my body, Lord, that you would speak your word to your people. I ask, Lord God, that you would make my mouth like a sharpened sword like a pen in the hand of a skillful writer, Lord, that you would write your word on the hearts and the minds of your people, that you would instruct us, that you would teach us, that you would guide us into all truth. Lord, I am so aware that in this flesh dwells no good thing. The only hope tonight is the Christ in me, the hope of glory. And Lord, I pray that you would be big in this place tonight, Lord, that... that, that John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that you can increase, Lord God. I, I, I just, I, I, I know that when I'm weak, you're strong, and I thank you that tonight you're going to be strong in this place. Spirit of wisdom, open our eyes again. Spirit of revelation, open our heart because we want to see you. We so desperately want to see you. Have your way in this place tonight, Lord. I come against every hindrance, every obstruction, every scheme, every plot of the enemy in the strong name of Jesus, and I declare that it's null and void in Jesus' name. I bind the enemy, and I hinder him from any power, any authority in this place, and I declare that this place is set apart for your glory, Lord that you will have your way in this place, that your Holy Spirit will rule and reign here, that eyes are going to be open, hearts are going to be open, and we are going to receive your word. Your word is going to penetrate hearts and minds tonight, Lord, that not one person sitting here tonight will leave the same, Lord, because your word works. It's powerful. It's active. It divides soul and spirit. Lord God, joint and marrow, it's powerful, it pierces. And Lord, I pray that it would pierce hearts and minds in this place tonight. We love you so much, Lord. I love you so much. I'm so grateful for all that you've done. You're such a good, good father. And I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your presence in this place tonight. Now be glorified, I pray, in Jesus' name. Um, guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. Shame is the feeling that arises from the belief that there's something deeply flawed in you. And as a result, it convinces you that you're unworthy of love and, the, and connection with God and with others. I, I want to remind you tonight that you were created in the image and in the likeness of God. You were created for connection with him. You are not flawed, and you are certainly not uh, unworthy of love. 
God himself has declared that you are worthy of praise. But the enemy of our soul works overtime to challenge that truth. He entices us into sin and he stirs up situations and traps that leave us feeling flawed, broken, and unworthy of love and acceptance. His goal is to get us to forget who we are in Christ that we are accepted in the beloved and dearly loved by him. He wants us to believe that the things we did are unforgivable and he fills us with shame and he makes us feel small and insignificant, convincing us that we'll never be good enough, we'll never measure up, and that no one will ever truly love us. Lies from the pit of hell. But if you live in shame long enough, you will learn to cover it up with masks that you think are more acceptable. You'll hide behind emotional walls and you'll keep people at an arm's distance where they can't hurt you. And in the bondage of all of that, we will lose sight of who God created us to be. And instead, we'll invent an image that we, a version of ourselves that we deem is more acceptable or we think is more lovable. But Jesus died so that we would have life and have it more abundantly. He removed our guilt and our shame on the cross of Calvary and made provision for us to be cleansed and made whole. He does not want his people living in shame. I want to talk to you tonight about a woman whose life was filled with guilt and shame, but one encounter with Jesus set her free into a place of great liberty and freedom. I'm hoping as we study this story tonight that you can find yourself in it. There's lots of opportunities. It's not just with the woman that we're going to talk about, but it's with some of the other characters in this story as well. I guarantee you, you will find yourself somewhere in this story. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We'll begin reading in verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, remember those beholds in the word of God are put there to get your attention. They're an exclamation point. They're, they're there so that you don't miss what's coming next. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flax of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair on her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said, Simon, <laughs> I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Jesus said there was a certain creditor who had two de debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? 
Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he, gave, whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair on her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, before we start talking about this story, it's important that you back up just a couple verses. In verse, verses 34 and, and, and 33, Jesus is being rebuked and just confronted by the Pharisees because they, they said, Jesus, you're friends with sinners and tax collectors, and they didn't like that. And then in Luke 15, verse 1, the Pharisees once again are confronting Jesus, and they're saying, this man welcomes sinners. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Those were the religious leaders. They, they didn't like that Jesus was welcoming sinners. They didn't like that he was eating with them. It gets even better when you understand the word welcome that they used in the original language. It doesn't just mean to eagerly wait for and expect and look for. It, it, it's actually not a passive waiting. It's a picture of Jesus seeking relationship with sinners and inviting them to a place of intimacy with him. Oh, they didn't like that. And so don't lose that, that picture in your mind that the, that the Pharisees did not like that Jesus met with sinners and tax collectors and they actually rebuked him for it. And now we're, we're going to look in this story and we're going to see yet another picture of Jesus welcoming and receiving sinners and inviting them to a place of intimacy and connection with him. Once again, in this story, the Pharisees are going to have a hard time with that. Religion will do that to you. Religion wants to put sin on a sliding scale. It wants to create a hierarchy of sin. But, but I have news for you. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is not a hierarchy of sin. Jesus died for the murder on death row as much as he died for the gossip sitting next to you. If your sin was the only sin, let's just say your sin is the only sin that you have is the sin of gossiping. Can I tell you that Jesus would have needed to die for it? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. In verse 36, we read that now one of the Pharisees, you know the Pharisees who didn't like that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, now invites him to have dinner with him. And I love that Jesus went. Remember, Jesus didn't just meet with sinners and tax collectors. He also met with Pharisees. One commentator says that Jesus not only loves the harlots, he loves the hypocrites as well. I'm curious why Simon invited Jesus that day. Because they didn't, these religious leaders didn't have a lot of time for Jesus at this time in his life. And William Barclay calls Simon a collector of celebrities, and I like that. 
You see, people were curious about Jesus, and Simon might have thought that it would do his reputation good to have him dining at his table. People are like that, you know. People like to be around influential people. They, they like to be able to say they know them. It inflates our pride. It builds up our ego. And, but most commentators agree that Simon wasn't interested in Jesus or his message. He was simply a collector of celebrities. He was patronizing Jesus. And as I studied this passage this week, I had to ask myself, do I, can I be guilty of patronizing Jesus? Do, do I entertain Jesus in my life, but I don't have an appreciation for, for all that he has done for me? Do I, like Simon, like to be able to say, I know Jesus? Do I like that other people think we're tight? Do I, do I say to Jesus, I want you to eat with me, dwell with me, visit occasionally? but I don't want to give him the respect he deserves by obeying his word and serving him passionately. If that's the case, we're patronizing Jesus. And that's not a proper response to his extravagant love. Verses 37 and 38 said, When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at that Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind him weeping. I, I don't want you to miss that. Notice it says that a woman who had lived a sinful life. One translation says a woman who was devoted to sin. This woman had a reputation. I, I want you to note that, that we know Simon's name, but we don't know her name. Oh, we, we know all about her reputation. We know all about her sinful life, but we don't know her name. Her reputation preceded her to dinner that night. Scripture tells us that she was devoted to sin. I wonder if anybody here understands what it's like to be devoted for sin, uh, to sin. I understand that some of you are super spiritual and, and you love Jesus and you've loved him all your life and you've lived a perfect peachy keen honky-dory life, but I have not. I understand what it's like to be devoted to sin. I understand what it's like to be in the muck and the mire and have Jesus reach down and pick me up and put me back on solid ground. I understand where this woman's coming from. But some of you can better understand Simon. One translation says that she was a notorious sinner. I like that. In other words, she was well known because of her sin. Talk about shame. Talk about an opportunity to feel worthless. Can you imagine what she must have been feeling when she walked into that dinner that night? Can, can you just put yourself in the story for a moment and imagine what that must have been like? Here's a woman with a tainted, not-so-perfect past, probably, commentators say, a, a prostitute. And she's walking uninvited into a dinner with men. And not just any men, but the religious elite the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. That, that's fascinating to me because, you see, the, the religious elite, the, the word Pharisee itself means those who separate themselves. These men uh, were, 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 were religious leaders whose goal in life was to separate themselves from sinners like this woman. 
That's why they didn't like that Jesus met with sinners, because he should be separating himself from people like that. Is anybody here besides me happy that Jesus meets with sinners and tax collectors, that he doesn't separate himself from sinners, that he came to seek and to save the lost? Anybody besides me happy about that? There's no way these men would invite a woman with her reputation to dinner at their house. I want to know what made her come. As I studied this passage, I had to ask myself, what would a woman of her reputation even want to go to a Pharisee's house? Why would she risk that? Risk meeting with men who, who, who intentionally separated themselves from people like her, who labeled her sinner and they were religious. Why would she risk it? It, was like, it would be like handing somebody a baseball bat and giving them permission to hit you over the head with it. What, what was she thinking? You know that when I met my husband, I had a sinful life. I had been devoted to sin for a long time in my life. And, and, and all the men that I had been involved with up until that time had deeply wounded me. They had taken from me and not given to me in return. I had run the gamut in relationships, experiencing emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. And so when my boss recommended that I go see Pastor Briscoe and, and talk to him about my, my pain and my heartache, I was like, you've got to be crazy. I, I, I had my fill of men, and I wanted nothing more to do with them. But after much persuasion, she, she insisted uh, that I go talk to him, and, and she talked me into sharing my story with him. And so reluctantly I went. I made her go with me, and, and, and I went to see him that day, and I began to share my heart and share everything that I had gone through, and, and, and he prayed for me that day. And when he did, it shook the foundations of my life. He was like no other man I had ever known. He was gentle, and he was tender, and his words were life-giving, not life-taking. And, and my encounter with him left me encouraged and filled me with hope. And we all know that my life was never the same because of that encounter. I believe that this woman experienced that same kind of thing, only on a much grander scale. She was a prostitute. Up until this time, men had used her and abused her. They took from her instead of giving to her. They, they used her and discarded her. She had heard every promise, felt every rejection, and she knew what it was like to be treated like an object, not a person. And then she met Jesus. And she came in contact with his extravagant love. Her encounter with Jesus caused her to see her worth and her value as a person. He gave her life instead of taking life from her. He spoke words of hope and encouragement and believed in her. He saw her value and his worth, not because of what she could give him, but because of whose she was. Somewhere along the line, this woman had realized that she no longer needed to accept the cheap, fraudulent love that she had been settling for in her illicit relationships. His was an offer of extravagant love. And as a result, her life would never be the same. His love changed her. Her encounter with him 
changed her. And I'm telling you, he is the still, still the same Jesus today. I want you to note that he was not put off by her reputation. He called her closer. And so she came and she brought with her a bottle, an alabaster bottle full of perfume. And the Bible says that she stood behind him weeping with that bottle. I, I want you to realize this was not a spontaneous act. It, it, the, because we know that because the word says that she learned that Jesus was at that Pharisee's house. And so she brought the alabaster jar uh, of perfume. It was purposeful. It was intentional. It, it wasn't a random act of worship. She sought him out. And she brought that jar with him. Clearly, she was not invited to that house that day. But she was determined to see Jesus. She was determined to have an encounter with him. This is an encounter series. And I need to ask you tonight, are you determined that you will have an encounter with Jesus? I told you last week, I believe that that's what's missing in churches today. We go to church, we hear a fine sounding message, we give a little praise and worship, and we never have an encounter with the one who can radically change and transform our lives. This woman had an encounter that changed her life. Somehow she had heard uh, about Jesus. Commentators say that this was not her, her first encounter with Jesus. They, they think that maybe she had seen the, the widow at Nain and, and her son be brought back to life. Or maybe she had heard Jesus' teaching in the streets. But one thing is for sure, somewhere along the line, his word became truth to her and life to her. And what she received made her long for more. That's what encounter does to you. What you receive and encounter, true encounter with him, when you sit in his presence and you truly encounter him, it will make you long for more. Somewhere along the line, she realized she could be safe with Jesus, safe to be her, safe to stop hiding, safe to take off the mask that, and stop trying to cover up her shame, safe to be loved, for who he created her to be. You see, you don't have to worry about the judgment of others when you know you're safe and secure with Jesus. People can talk and it won't matter. People can try to offend and it doesn't penetrate. Not when you know the safety of his presence. This woman was done hiding. She could risk by going into that Pharisee's house because it wasn't about what they thought about her. It was what Jesus thought about her. Sometimes we care so much about what Susie down the street has to say about us instead of what the Word of God has to say about us, what Jesus has to say about us. She had encountered Jesus, and that encounter changed her life, and now she came to lavish her love on him. She knew she couldn't fix herself. She knew only Jesus could do that. She knew she couldn't fill that void with men. She had tried that. Only Jesus could do that. She was done pretending. She was done with fraudulent loves. Shame had kept her hiding long enough. She didn't need other people to accept her anymore. She didn't need their approval to validate her life. She had encountered Jesus, and he validated her. She found her worth in him. Stephen Shamrock says, uh, without the heart, there is no worship. It's stage play. It's acting a part without being that person. Really, it's playing the role of a hypocrite. 
This woman was coming that day to worship, to worship the one who had set her free. And her heart was in it. She could not be accused of being a hypocrite. But Simon, <laughs> the Pharisee, on the other hand, he, he thought he knew all there was to know about God. After all, it was his job. He was a spiritual leader. But his heart wasn't in it. He knew God in his head, but it hadn't reached his heart yet. And I wonder tonight how many of us know lots about God in our head, but it hasn't reached our heart yet. He was play-acting, which is exactly what the word hypocrite means. Simon was hiding behind a mask of spirituality, acting the part, but never experiencing the benefits. When, the, when James, in the book of James, talks about sincere faith, it, it means faith without play-acting. It means to be without play-acting. It means to not be a hypocrite. He wants sincere faith. God is looking for people who will give him sincere faith. Not games, not a spiritual mass, not I'm all that in a bag of potato chips. How you doing? Praise the Lord. I was at Bible study this week. Did you come to prayer group? Hallelujah. Bless you, brother. It's good to see you. That is play-acting. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. This week in Friday Bible study, we, we studied about Nathaniel, and Jesus looked at Nathaniel. He didn't know anything about him. He had never seen him before, but he looked at him under the tree, and he said, there is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want more than anything in my life. I want, I want the Lord to be able to look at me and say, there is Rhea. She is true. There is nothing false in her. People can accuse me of whatever they want, but I am telling you that my Jesus knows that that is my one goal in life, that there is nothing false in me. Simon was a hypocrite. It was clear in the way he was treating that woman. But she wasn't play-acting. She came that day to give her best to Jesus, and she didn't care what they thought or how they were treating her. And so she came to Jesus, and she came up behind him with that alabaster jar. The people there uh, made no qualms about how they felt about her. Even if they didn't say it, it would have been written all over their face. I'm sure she could sense the tension in the atmosphere. But she had come to worship, and she brought that jar to do it. You see, that wasn't just an alabaster jar. The jar she had represented her whole life. It was all she had of value. It, it was her future. It was her security. It represented her safety and her protection in the future. That was costly ointment. And, and it, 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 would have been, it would have been either a dowry when she got married, or it would have been provided for her financially in the future. It was her safety. It was her protection. It was the best she had. And Mark tells us that she broke that jar and poured it out on Jesus. What she brought that day was costly. It was a sacrifice. Because once that jar was broken, that perfume could not be put back in it. I'm sure that prior to this time, she had protected that jar with everything she had. I'm sure she kept it safe and secure. I'm sure she guarded it from being broken because it was valuable to her. But when she came to Jesus, she was willing to give him that thing that was of most value to her. And she poured it out on him. She poured it out on him. She didn't care what people thought. 
She didn't care that they were judging her. She didn't care that they were looking at her and then looking at themselves, thinking what a sinner she is. She didn't care. She had come to be with Jesus. Sometimes we care too much about what people think. I'm really getting to be purposeful about this. When I'm hurting, when I'm feeling like I'm judged unfairly, when I'm feeling like somebody's estimation of me is not fair, I, I used to run to Dave, to Leslie, and, and tell them all about it. But I'm telling you, I'm trying to get to a point where I run to Jesus now and in his presence be able to connect with him and find my value and find my worth. You see, reputation is what man says about you, but character is what God knows about you. And I care very little. Who was it? The, one of the apostles says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. It is God who judges me. It is God who judges me. And so she was there that day not to appease man. She was there to meet with Jesus. And she brought the most costly, expensive things she could possibly bring. She was done pretending. She was done trying to please man. She was done putting on masks. It, it's so interesting to me. My daughter, Kendall, is a typical, um, what is she, Generation Z? Is that what she is? Um, and and she, she's amazing with technology and with social media. It, it blows my mind. I have a problem with social media because Dave and I were out for dinner one time, and we were watching this family, and they were taking pictures for social media. And the kids were irritated. Everybody was on their phone, and, and they were grouching at each other. And then somebody gets up, and they're like, hey, everybody smile. Come on, let's get a picture for, for Instagram. And, and, and they all look up, and they put this smile on their face. They had just been fighting five minutes earlier, but they all like, you smile, they put their phones down, and the picture looked amazing. I watched them take it, and I thought, now people are going to see that on Instagram, and they're going to be like, what a great family. But I had seen it in the real. I saw how they were fighting and how nasty they were to each other, and that I have a problem with social media because we can do that. But Kendall is a master at social media, and so she's always a photographer in our family, and, and she doesn't just do what I just snap one picture, and you're done. It's like, snap, 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 snap. I like hundreds of pictures for one, one setting. And I'm like, Kendall, what are you doing? And she'll be like, Mom, Mom, smile bigger. Mom, your eyes are closed. Mom, I don't like that picture. Back up a little bit. Mom, you, and she, she's, so, she's so picky till she gets the right picture. Well, then when she gets the right picture, do you know what she does? She's got filters. Baby, she can take wrinkles out of my face. She can make me look skinnier. If I forget to have makeup on, she can even rosy up my cheeks a little bit. She is a master at filters. And, and, and she can take a picture that I think is gross, don't put that thing on Instagram, and she can post it, and I'd be like, wow, I am photogenic. I'm not. But she is a master at it. When I was thinking about Simon, and I was thinking about shame, because you see, I've lived in shame. I understand it. One of my favorite scriptures, I, I love this more than anything in the world. The Bible says that God is the lifter of our head. Do you know what that means? See, if you've never dealt with shame, you don't understand what that means. If you've ever seen a woman in shame, do you know how you identify a woman in shame? She hangs her head. She can't, she can't look you in the eye. There's so much shame. Her hair's hanging in her face. And I love that Jesus says, I am the lifter 
of your head. What he's saying is, no child of mine is ever going to live in shame. I am the lifter of your head. He doesn't want us hiding. He doesn't want us putting on masks. See, this is what we do. We put on masks and we try to appear to be something that we're not because we're so desperate to fit in. We're so desperate for love and acceptance. Oh, I just want to forget my notes. I've just got to tell the story. I, I wanted to bring it and I completely forgot. Some of you have seen me do this story before. But when I married Dave, oh, Lord, help me, the house. I got the man, but I had a house that needed some work. And, and when I married him, his house was unbelievable. He had striped wallpaper with flowers underneath it and chair rail and just crazy colors in the house and like a turkey on the wall. And it was just not, it was paneling in the, in, in the den and shag carpeting and I can't even tell you what the house was like but he had this table that's that a carpenter made for us when we got married and it was beautiful it was it was designed by a carpenter and it was oak and it was beautiful and as we were married for a long time and children uh, grew up and well we got a new kitchen and Jill and Stuart paid for us to remodel our kitchen and we got this beautiful new kitchen and when we got the kitchen there was a desk in the kitchen and we didn't use that table anymore Jill bought us a new table and, and so we sent that table to Goodwill and we kept one of the chairs to sit at this new desk that was in our kitchen and so our kitchen at that time I think was blue um, you know geese blue that 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 light color blue some of you are smelling what I'm stepping in yep gross but at the time that was beautiful and so we painted that chair this light color blue to to blend in with our kitchen that was wallpapered and whatever in that color well, many years later, I decided that was that blue one out and geese one out and and then the dark green and burgundy came in are you with me well, I got me some new fabric for my sliding glass door windows, and we painted and wallpapered the kitchen again. And now that blue chair no longer fit in that environment. And so you know what I did. I just painted over it, painted it green to match the environment that it was going to be in. Everything was great. Well, then a couple years later, our boys are Manchester United fans, and they got a new Manchester United comforter and, and the, the, the desk got moved up to their bedroom. And so they needed a desk. We put that in their bedroom, and we painted the chair yellow because they had Manchester United red and yellow colors. And so the chair got painted yellow, and it blended in with that environment. Well, the boys soon studying did not become a priority for them, and the girls wanted the desk in their bedroom, and so the desk got moved from the boys' bedroom. If I'm lying, I'm dying. This is the true story. It gets moved over to the girls' bedroom, and the girls' bedroom was pink and purple, and so we painted the chair pink to blend in with the girls' bedroom. Are you following me? Eventually, the girls grew up, didn't need a desk anymore, so the chair got put out into the garage. When Kendall, who came along later, had a school project and she needed to spray paint it, she would take that chair, put the 
project on it and spray paint. And so now the chair has spray paint all over it as well. And we would use that chair if I needed to reach something in the garage or in my kitchen. I'd bring the chair in and I'd step up on it and, and I'd, I'd reach whatever I needed to reach. Well, so many stepping on it and that kind of thing. All of those colors that it had been painted started to come through the chair. So the paint started chipping off and you started to see all the colors that it was. And I still have the chair. I was going to bring it tonight. But my point is, whatever environment that chair was in, we painted it to fit in. Now, mind you, it was created by a carpenter to be a thing of beauty, and it was. But we painted it to fit in to whatever environment it was in. One day I was down in the basement and the chair somehow got down to the basement. And I was getting in the freezer to get something out and I looked over and I happened to see the chair sitting there. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, Rhea, you see that chair? That's your life. At the time, I was so full of shame, so full of condemnation and guilt, if you were, if you will. And the enemy used that to keep me in bondage. And so everywhere I went, I would just paint myself to fit in. I didn't know who I was in Christ. There was no peace there. The peace was, what do you want me to be? You want me to be fun and loving, a party girl? I'll paint myself to fit in. And then if this person over here, they wanted me to be super spiritual and, and very religious, I would paint myself to fit in, and guess what I would fit in? And if you needed me to be the life of the party, man, could I be the life of the party? And I would just paint myself to fit in, and I would be that for you. And before I knew it, I had painted myself so much that I didn't realize that I was created by a carpenter to be precious and valuable, that he created me a thing of great beauty and worth, but because... The enemy had lied to me because I bought into the lie that I wasn't significant and I wasn't worth anything. I began to just paint myself and I forgot who I was. And then one encounter with Jesus changed everything. When I started to realize, I don't need your acceptance to add value to my life. I don't need your approval to feel good about myself. I don't need you to think I'm all that in a bag of potato chips. I don't really care what you say about me behind closed doors because there is a place in Jesus that I can understand that I am of great value and I am of great worth, that I am accepted in the beloved and I am dearly loved by him and that, that he has been, I've been chosen by him and I am not rejected. And you see, that's a place of freedom. That's a place of liberty. And that is a place that this woman, when she brought that alabaster jar, that's why she wanted to give him everything she had, the best that she had. You see, I, people say, Rhea, why do you preach the way you preach? Because that's the best I have. I want to give him everything I have. I want my life to just crack open, to break open. I want to be broken for him so that he can spill out onto other people, so that I can spill out my praise, so that I can spill out my worship, so that I can spill out my love for him. Because I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. He has redeemed me. He has bought me back. And I belong to him.
I don't need to put masks on anymore. I don't need you to be okay with me anymore because I know who he says I am. She could come there that day because she had encountered Jesus. It didn't matter what they were saying about her. It was him and her, him and her. And she had come to pour out her love on him. So Jesus is reclining at the table, and, and, and the, the Bible says that she came in behind him, and she stood at his feet and broke that bottle uh, open on his feet, and she was weeping. And it's important that you understand what that word weeping means, and I promise I'm finishing. That word weeping, uh, it, it, Luke uses the imperfect tense here. And it describes continual weeping, continual wiping with the hair, continual kissing, continue anoint, continual anointing his feet with, with oil for an uncomfortably long time. Can you imagine those religious Pharisees who were judging her had to watch that for an uncomfortably long time, Luke tells us. She wasn't just crying, she was sobbing. We know that she was sobbing because she had enough tears to wash his feet with those tears. And she began to, the Bible says, she began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. I just want you to see the eyes that she had once used to seduce men now were overflowing with tears of repentance. Uh, can I just tell you that our tears are precious to him? Some of you are going through some stuff right now. I know that about you. And, and I just want to tell you that your tears are precious to Jesus. The Bible says that he keeps every tear we cry in a bottle. That's how precious they, they are to him. That's how valuable we are to him. Someone wrote for this woman, the immense value of the perfume found in that alabaster jar was a mere pittance compared to the gift of forgiveness she had received from her Messiah. The glares of the Pharisees and stabbing words of those judging her no longer held her captive, for she had been set free by the lover of her soul. Their looks of condemnation were canceled out when her Savior looked upon her with grace. She had been pardoned, and ransom had been paid, and now she was free. She couldn't help but reciprocate for the gift that he had given her. He had taken her sins, and she was responding in total abandonment. She was giving them, him the best she had available, that alabaster jar that hung around her neck. The things she once used to entice men, perfume, she was now lavishing on the one who had lavished grace upon her. Grace does that, you know. I don't think we can understand grace until you understand the depth of your sin. You see, Simon <laughs> was a sinner just like this woman. Jesus is going to make that clear to him soon. But you see, he didn't understand grace. He was offended by her lavish worship because he didn't understand grace because he didn't understand the depth of, uh, of his own sin. This woman was overcome with thankfulness because she did. The love and acceptance she had been searching for in all her encounters, she found in Jesus. 
She was a sinful woman. Even Jesus admits that. He says, you're many sins. But her encounter with Jesus awakened in her a boundless love for the one who had set her free. The Bible says she wiped his feet with her hair. That was scandalous. In Bible times, it would have been scandalous for a woman to be seen with her hair down. That was only done in private with your own husband. But again, she didn't care. It was heartfelt worship. She, she was totally abandoning herself to him. People that were watching were uncomfortable. Authentic worship does that. It makes people uncomfortable. It's actually offensive to those who don't understand. A couple of weeks ago, we, we, we had an extended time of worship, and the Lord, the, the Spirit of the Lord just came upon me so, so powerfully that night, and I was completely lost in worship. I, I can't sing a note on tune, but I didn't even care. I was belting out worship at the top of my lungs. I was completely lost. I watched myself on, on Facebook afterwards, and I was mortified. I was spinning. I was dancing. I had stitches down my back that I broke open because I was swinging my arms so much. And, and, but see, that's what authentic worship does. At the time, I didn't care who saw me. I didn't care what was happening. I was lost in worship to the one who was so deserving of it. But authentic worship is offensive to those who don't understand it. They were offended by her worship. She was kissing his feet and pouring perfume on them. And the word for kiss meant she would kiss them over and over and over again. She's pouring perfume uh, uh, on him. Can, can you just imagine? I just want you to think about this. See, I just love this kind of stuff. I love when Jesus shows off and puts people in their place. I just love it. I, I, I love it. I, I love that he makes even my enemies live at peace with me. I always say to people, you do not want to be my enemy because I understand God. I understand that when a man's ways are pleasing to God, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. I, I understand that he says, stand still and watch me fight your battles for you. I, I get that. I, I get that he is with me like a mighty warrior. I don't, I don't need to fight my own battles. He can handle them just fine and so much better than me. I see that in this story. Because you see, have you ever been with somebody that sprayed perfume just a few minutes before you walk by and you get wafted by their perfume? Um, it, perfume lingers, doesn't it? <laughs> I, I'll, I'll never forget, Davey, you'll laugh at this story because he remembers um, when my girls were teenagers, um, I took them shopping one day, and I always had my own car, but for that for some reason that day I took Dave's car, and, and my girls, we hopped in the car, and we went, uh, we were at Boston store, I think, and we did what any respectable pastor's wife who's on a pastor's salary would do. We went into the perfume counter, and we went, we just lathered up with those testers. I mean, I was like, get some on you. We're going to get this last. I had a winter coat on. I was like, I'm spraying my winter coat, so it's there for a long time. Uh, you know, it's, it was a free tester. Then we went out, and we got in our car, and I put my seatbelt on and drove home. And the next week, I got in Dave's car, and I put the seatbelt on, and I was like, Pastor Briscoe, we need a chat. Who was in your car smelling like that? And then I remembered, perfume lingers, fragrance lingers. Oh, baby, come on, you got to be with me here. So, <laughs> Simon, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know who's touching him 
and that she is a sinner. That's what he's thinking in his head. This woman is in his house with a jar of spikenard. Strong perfume. Expensive perfume. I mean, this is not dime store stinky perfume that makes your eyes water. This is expensive perfume. Broken. Spilled all over Jesus' feet, which means spilled all over Simon's floor, which means Jesus is going to walk out of there with that on his feet and trap, trample it all over Simon's house. I love this so much, I can't even stand it. Because <laughs> fragrance lingers. My mom died 15 years ago. 15, one five years, years ago. And I loved her more than anything in this world. And my sister sent me a box with her Bible. All, she, all I wanted was her, she always wore this, this robe. Um, always wore it. Have coffee in the morning with her with that robe on. <laughs> she loved it. So I wanted her robe and I wanted her Bible. And there was something else I wanted. And my sister packed it up and she sent it to me in this box. Well, when the box arrived 15 years ago, I couldn't bear to open it. I didn't even want to see it. So I shoved it in my closet and put it on one of my shelves. Just recently, 15 years later, I broke the seal of the box and I poured my mom's robe out. And out of the box, And I held it up to my nose, and I just wept because her smell lingered. Fragrance will do that for you. It has the ability to bring you back, to, to, to take you back. I love that two weeks later, three weeks later, Simon's walking in his house, and he is smelling. He's smelling the fragrance of worship that he had never seen the likes of before. And he was remembering that encounter with Jesus because the Bible says that Simon was standing there and he's thinking, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know who's touching him. And by the word, touch means a sexual touch. He's He's, he's, she's worshiping and a Pharisee's condemning. I want you to ask how often that happens in church where somebody's worshiping and we're condemning. And he's thinking this in his head and the Bible says that Jesus answered him. And I love that because he didn't ask any questions. <laughs> he didn't even say anything out loud. Thank you. He didn't even say anything out loud. He just thought it. Because here, I want to just tell you, Jesus knows what's in a man. He knows what you're thinking, so you might as well come clean with it. That's why we need to guard our thoughts. And he said, Simon, can I, can I tell you something? <laughs> Hear the religious response. Yes, teacher. What would you like to tell me? Listen to what he tells him. 
Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. So a denarii was us a usual day of wages for a laborer. So one man owed 500 days of worth of wages. The other one owed 50 days worth of wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Our son Mike, I have four boys and three girls, and our son Mike is tough. And um, when they, the kids were growing up, Dave always worried about the day that they would challenge him physically. Um, one of our boys is six, five, six, six, very tall. Um, but all of our boys were big and muscular, and they were soccer players, so they were very fit. And Dave always worried about that just between him and I. He worried about the day that they would challenge him and he wouldn't be able to win because he needed to be the big elephant. He needed to be the big man in the house. And so one night we're all standing around in the kitchen, all nine of us, and we're standing around, we're laughing, and, and, and the boys are like showing their pipes. They're like, look at this pipe! And they're playing this game, you know, Hulk, they're doing that. And, you know, testosterone's flying all over the place, and they're challenging each other, and Dave's laughing, and he's like, oh, look at this pipe. And Mike steps up, and he says, hey, Dad, want to arm wrestle? And I looked at Dave, and I saw his face. And, and I knew what he was thinking. I, I knew he was thinking, Rhea, pray for an anointing to arm wrestle because I have to win this. <laughs> and Mike gets his arm up, and all the kids gather around. And he's like, come on, Dad, let's arm wrestle. And, and I'm thinking, Lord Jesus, if there is ever an anointing to arm wrestle, you've got to give it to him right now in Jesus' name. I mean, I, I understand the importance here because the big boys are all around. And if Dave loses this one, he's lost power in that house and and so they put his arm up he cannot back down he's got to <laughs> he's got to man up and so he gets up and he puts his arm up and Mikey big bulging muscle <laughs> and Dave grabs a hold and and they say one two three and bam and Mikey's arm went down and they're like yes that's my man that is my man that's my man uh, and the kids are all like what just happened here that old man just beat Mikey? <laughs> and so Mike's like, I can't do this. Let's do it again, Dad. Come on. And I'm thinking, oh, he probably just used every bit of strength he had. Is he going to be able to do it again? And so he mans up, and they go up again, and bam, he puts him down. I'm like, that's my man. But you see, Mike, he looked at Dave, and he sized him up. And in his estimation, looked at himself and he looked pretty good. And Dave really didn't look like anything. His estimation of Dave was wrong. Mike thought he looked pretty good, but he had overestimated his ability. And Simon did the same thing. He had totally missed the point. He looked at this sinful woman and he compared himself to her and he came up looking pretty good. I'm sure he was thinking, thank goodness I'm not a sinner like her. But Jesus was saying, Simon, you might think your debt is only 50 denarii and hers is 500, but her debt may be 10 times more than yours, but you're both in debt nonetheless. You're both 
bankrupt. Neither one of you can pay back, Simon. It doesn't matter how much you owe. If you're broke, you're broke. And I'm telling you, we're all spiritually bankrupt. We all owe a debt we cannot pay. And Jesus came to, to pay a debt he did not owe. A debt, he, a debt, I had a debt that I couldn't pay. And he paid a debt I didn't know. And you see, when you really understand that, you see, I understand how much I've been forgiven for. I don't have any problem understanding the depths of my sin. I, I understand I deserve hell, and I've been given heaven. And you see, I can't help but lavish my love on him as a result. It's the people I worry about are the people who think, oh, I'm really not that bad. I was always a pretty good little girl. I always obeyed. I went to church all the time. I've always loved Jesus. I would never do what Rhea did. You rock home with your bad self. Because Jesus had a lot to say to Simon. Simon and his self-righteous arrogance. You see, we have this hierarchy of sin where we put the murder and death row up here and then homosexuality and then maybe adultery, lying, and then way down here, gossip. And it's this hierarchy of sin, but that's not the way Jesus sees it. And if he did, can I just tell you what I think would be on the top? Self-righteousness. Because self-righteousness is an affront to the cross of Calvary. It says, Jesus, I, I'm doing pretty good on my own. I don't need the blood of Jesus. I don't need what you did on Calvary. I, I don't need you to die for me. I, I got this on my own. I'm doing pretty good all on my own. Look at me, Jesus. Look at what I'm doing. And that's an affront to the cross of Calvary. I had a debt I could not pay. And he paid a debt he did not owe. That's extravagant love. That's extravagant love. I've been thinking a lot lately um, as I've been studying this. I've been thinking, Lord, what do I have that I could give you? What do I have of value that, that I could give you, that I could pour out on you? I, I, I want to know. I, I want to know what, what's of value to me. And, and because I don't have an alabaster jar. But this week as I thought about it, I, I thought, what do I store up thinking it'll benefit me in the future? What do I keep so that I can keep myself safe, so that I can protect myself? And, and then I got to thinking that I don't have an alabaster jar. I have an alabaster heart. I have a hard heart that I store up. I, I store up offenses because in, in my mind, if I just store up these offenses, if I keep a record of wrongs, you won't be able to hurt me again. If I keep reminding myself of what you did, I won't get close enough to you to let you hurt me again. And so I just, I put those in my treasure heart, in my, in my alabaster heart, and I store it up saying, that's, I'm keeping that for my future. It keeps me safe. It protects me. See, that, her alabaster jar, what was future? And I'm telling you, it is not serving us well. The Lord said, that's the most costly thing you could give me. And I'm like, it is costly, Lord, because if I let go of these offenses, if I let go of keeping a record of wrongs, if I let go of unforgiveness, then, then what if they hurt me again? And then he replayed this story in my head. She was safe with Jesus, even with their judgmental glares, even with their critical words. She could dump it all out. She could pour it all out on him. 
because she was safe with him. We're finishing. Jesus says to, her, to Simon, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? Oh, I, I know you see her sin, Simon. <laughs> I know you see her past, but Simon, do you see this woman? The, the word that he uses for see here is, is very interesting. It, it, it means to carefully notice, to perceive, to understand. It means to be impacted and changed by what he saw. He, he was saying, Simon, do you see this woman? I, I know you see her sin. I know you see her past, but do you see her, Simon? Are you impacted by what you see, Simon? Do you see past her sin to her pain? Do you see past her seductiveness? to her neediness. Simon, do you see this woman? Because you see, Jesus sees you. He sees past your, your issues. He sees past what brings shame on you. He sees past your regrets. He, see, he knows what he created. He sees you. He sees your pain. He sees every tear you've ever cried, and he keeps it in a bottle. Notice what it says. It says that Jesus turned towards the woman, and he said to Simon, he turned his back on Simon, and he got eye contact with the woman. It, it, was, it was reeking of acceptance. I'm sending her, he is sending her a message. My eye is on you. I got you here. Simon, do you see this woman? Can I tell you, he sees you. He sees you. All Simon saw was her sin, but Jesus saw her. Simon didn't take the time, nor did he have the interest to see the need beneath her sin. I'm sorry, church, I just want to tell you this. Sometimes, and I'm saying it as gently as I can, I read a book, Sue, Sue gave me a, a wonderful book on uh, becoming the voice of God. It's about the, the office of a prophet. And I know that I have a prophetic gift. I, I know um, that I function as a prophet, that I say hard things. I come in, I step into people's lives, and I say hard things that need to be said. Dave is a shepherd. If you want this tender, oh, I love you, I'm here for you, let me comfort you, go to Dave. But if you want truth that will change and transform you, if you want to hear hard things that, 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 that will absolutely transform your life, come to me. And, and I am fully aware. I, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at peace with my gifting. I know that that's how I'm gifted. I know that's how Dave's gifted. And, and, and that's why we're a good team together. Uh, you know, what do they say? A prophet comes in and tears down, and the, and the shepherd goes and builds back up the right way. And, and, and that's just how we function. And that's the way God created us. And so I, I am always aware when I'm teaching that I can come across like that. I understand that. But I feel like I need to say this to the church. I need you to hear me say that sometimes we can be Simon. Sometimes we can be so self-righteous and we can look at other people and all we see is their sin. All we see is the way they're missing the mark and we can make unfair judgments about them and we can make them feel shamed and, 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 and full of, of condemnation and guilt. And that is not ours. We are not the Holy Spirit. He is perfectly capable of bringing conviction in whoever's life he needs to convict. We are not the Holy Spirit in those people's lives. We are called to love. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Love overcomes a multitude of wrongdoing. We're called to love. And so often we are so busy judging. We're so busy judging. I have a wonderful friend. 
He's an addict. He's so filled with shame. I do not need to add to his shame. What he, he expects condemnation. He expects somebody to judge him. What he doesn't expect is love because love disarms him. Love, he doesn't know what to do with my love. He can't figure that out. He can figure out somebody who judges him. He can shut them off, but he doesn't understand love. And that's what we're called to do, church. But so often we become like this Pharisee where the church becomes a place where people can come and get judged, not a place where people can come and get healed. And when last time I read my Bible, it says that only the sick need a doctor. And that makes us all sin sick, every one of us here. And we all need a doctor, and his name is Jesus. And so we come on equal footing. We come on equal ground before the one who is able, who sees us and is able to, what did I say last week, ascertain what needs to be done about it. He's able to fix us. He's able to heal us. He's able to set us free. That's what Encounter did for this woman. Simon, do you see this woman? And then he says, Simon, you didn't even show me the basic uh, courtesies of washing my feet and anointing my, 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 my head. You, you, you didn't kiss my cheek when I came in. You didn't even give me basic courtesy. But this woman has not stopped doing it. And, and he says, what, what she's done for me today will go down in history. And I, I wrote in my Bible, I want the kind of love that gets lavished on Jesus that goes down in history. I want it to be memorable. I, I want him to say, that Rhea, the way she loves me. That I, want, I want that kind of, uh, of love for him. He deserves that. Do you understand what we've been forgiven for? This woman did, and the Bible says because of that she loved much. But Simon didn't understand what he had been forgiven for and therefore loved little. Where are you at in the story tonight? Do you identify most with Simon or most with this woman? Maybe you're here tonight, and like Simon, this story has, has served as a warning regarding your own lovelessness. The little value we have placed on our forgiveness has caused us to love little. Maybe you've taken for granted the enormous debt that has been canceled for you, and instead you've been spending way too much time calculating other people's debts and judging their sinful lives. God is speaking to you tonight. He wants to deliver you from loving little to living a life of reckless abandonment to him. Or maybe you're here and, and you can relate most to the sinful woman. I, I can relate to both. Maybe you've lived a life of regret and you're filled with shame. Maybe you've been satisfied with fraudulent loves that leave you feeling empty and worthless. Maybe you need to hear his, your sins have been forgiven, now go in peace. Jesus cares as much about the hypocrites as he does the harlots. Both encountered Jesus that day, and I would be um, tempted to say that both were changed as a result of that encounter. Do you know what you've been forgiven for? I think this woman was probably filled with such shame and such regret and such condemnation from people around her that she was bound. And somewhere along the line, she encountered Jesus and his reckless love, his relentless love. 
and it changed her. Has it changed you? Have we been following him so long <laughs> that we don't even remember what we've been forgiven for? There's a scripture in um, Revelation that says, remember the height from which you've fallen and return to your first love. It starts out by saying you've grown lukewarm. And here's the answer to returning to that on-fire passion for the Lord. Remember the height from which you've, been, you've fallen and return to your first love. I have a song I want to play for you in closing, and I just want you to sit in it. I want you to still, still your heart. I told you that encounter, I believe, is about turning your souls, being intentional to turn your soul's affection onto the Lord, off the people around you, off the situations around you. Sometimes I just need to steal away in the privacy of my house, and I need to, to just turn my affection back to Jesus because I get too caught up with what's going on around me, the problems, the troubles, and I have to just steal away and focus on the Lord, turn my heart's attention back to him. And in that place, peace comes. And so I want you to do that as you listen to this song. Set your affection on him. Turn your soul's affection back to the Lord and focus on him and just receive what he has for you to receive tonight and encounter with him, I believe. I 
Father God, we just thank you and we praise you for love poured out on the cross of Calvary. We thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to be free, and he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Lord, we pour our praise out to you tonight. We give you praise and honor and glory for all that you've done. We're so grateful, Lord. We're so grateful that you love us. We're so grateful that you don't treat us like our sins deserve. We're so grateful for your mercy and your grace, Lord. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you that you're cleansing us. You're, you're washing us and making us new. I pray specifically, Lord, for each person here tonight, Father, that we would have an encounter 
with your presence, Lord, that we, would, that we would understand who we are in you. Lord, that our identity is in you. It's not in what people say we are. It's not in, in the choices we've made in our past, that our identity is in you, that we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for new beginnings. We thank you for fresh starts. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that your compassions never fail and great is your faithfulness. Lord, we're so grateful. And Father, I pray that you would deliver us from self-righteousness and unfair judgments of other people. Lord, that you would give us eyes to see people through your eyes, Lord, that we would extend the same grace and mercy that you extended to us, Father God. And Lord, I pray that this next week, Lord, that each person here Lord, that I would come into a place of greater encounter with you, Lord. We want to know you better. We want to see you clearer. We want to serve you better. We want to love you better, Lord. And so take us in deeper. Take us up higher, I pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.